Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Broke Girl Society podcast. I'm your host, Christina. Thank you so much for listening in. So today we have Dave Yeager. He is back on to talk about his newly released book, The Fall-In Book. Um, You may be familiar with Dave. I had him on last year to share his story. Um, His story is really unique in the fact that he started his gambling in the military and it was throughout his military career. It impacted him in that capacity. And so he'll recap his story a little bit with us today, talk about his writing process for the book and and also some advocacy work that he does around military and veterans and, um, you know, recovery resources. So it's always a great conversation with Dave. If you want to hear his story more in depth, Uh, look for that episode from last year. And then also um, his book is now available out on Barnes & Noble, where I got mine, or Amazon. Um, The links will be in the show notes. All right, so before we get into this episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, The Better Institute, where people go to get better. Therapy is a great tool to add to your recovery journey. Um, They are in the Pennsylvania state. So if if you're in that state and are looking for a therapist, reach out to betterinstitute.com. Jody and the rest of them, a great group of people. Uh, Yeah. So let's go ahead and get on into this episode. Uh, So thanks for listening in. All right. Hey, I'm glad to have you back on here, Dave. How are you? Been doing well. Thanks. Good to see you again. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm I'm you've you've done a lot of exciting stuff since we recorded last year and I'm really looking forward to kind of getting into all of that. But one of the the most recent things is you've got a book coming out. I certainly do. In fact, it's already out there and available at least in paperback form. So, it's called Fall In a veteran with a gambling addiction. And I drew the name, of course, right off my podcast, Fall In, the Problem Gambling Podcast for Military Service Members and Veterans. Okay. All right. Well, I'm really excited. I ordered mine. Actually, I ordered it. Well, I ordered it Saturday. So. Great. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. I wish I'd had it when I saw you just recently in D.C. um, Because then I would have had you sign it. But I know I will um, so, probably be seeing you again. So I was just going to say, I am going to sign it for you no matter what. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So let's go ahead and kind of recap everybody on who you are. And I know I kind of jumped ahead with the book because I'm really excited and I wanted that to kind of be out there first. Um, so I had you on last year and your story is a little bit different than what most people hear on the BGS because I usually highlight women's stories, but you've be- become such a good friend, you know, through the podcasting and, you know, your story is unique and um, it still relates to gambling harm in, in your own journey. And so I actually ended up getting so much feedback from your episode and I even had people who, uh, fellas who listened to the podcast reach out and be like, I had no idea, you know, there was a military one. I've been in the military. I'm in the military. Um, and they connected with it. And so I was, I was really excited about that, you know? So, um, let's go ahead and just recap. Okay. Yeah. And one thing I want to say is, is one of the cool things about our podcast, yours and mine is that each one of us is reaching out to a population that generally gets overlooked or underserved. So, there are similarities between what you do and what I do. It's just a different group of people, although some of those people cross over on both yeah. sides. Yeah. So it's just great. So to just give you a little bit about me and my story, um, I fell into my gambling addiction, I guess you would say, back in 2001. About a month and a half after the events of 9-11, I was actually sent to Korea for a year. At the time, I was in my first marriage, had two young children um, who... I left behind. I wasn't on the best of terms with my my first wife at that time. So I left, <clears throat> excuse me, I left kind of angry, stressed, frustrated, and then also flying into what President Bush at the time was calling part of the axis of evil. So I had no idea what I was stepping into. Needless to say, I was extremely stressed when I got there. So we fly into Osan Air Base, which is in about the middle of the southern south southern peninsula. When I say Korea, I, I'm referencing South Korea for those who might be wondering. 
So for us, it was called the Republic of Korea. So if you hear me say Korea, that's it. Um, so we flew into Osan Air Base, took a trip up to Yongsan, which is in Seoul, which is the main army base in Korea. Got myself settled in in a really, really nice hotel. Certain bases throughout the world have very, very nice, you know, four or five star hotels right on them that travelers can stay in. So I was put up in the hotel, put all my stuff away. I was I was tired, but no way I was ready to sleep. I was too stressed. Um, I was hungry, so I got something to eat. And then I'm walking around the hotel and all of a sudden I'm hearing these noises and I'm like, what is that? So I poked my head around the side of a room and lo and behold, I see a casino style slot room right there in the hotel on the army base. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know these existed, which is because they don't exist here in the United States. They only exist in overseas facilities. So I'm like, okay, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm not too far from Atlantic City. When I was younger, I used to gamble, never had an issue with it. I'd take a certain amount of money with me. If I spent it, great. If I didn't, great. You know, so I thought, okay, I'll take some money out of the ATM. I'll go, I'll sit down. I, I can't sleep right now anyway. Maybe this will help me kind of play out some time so I can go to sleep then. Well, as I'm sitting there, I'm playing and all of the sudden, and the way I always like to say this is I made the biggest mistake a budding compulsive gambler can make and I won. Um, and it wasn't a break the bank win. It wasn't, I didn't tear down the house, but it was enough that I can remember feeling in that moment, kind of my shoulders relaxing, all the stress kind of washed away and it felt good. Yeah. It felt good in that moment. So after feeling so stressed and bad for so long. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden there was a moment where it's like, okay, all this crap is gone now. Now I can just relax for a second. And you know, that night the stress did come back. It didn't go away forever. I was not in the snap of fingers, you know, an addicted gambler. But I can tell you in that moment, something changed because as we progressed through that year in the peninsula, my desire, I got down ultimately to my assignment, which was at the far Southern end of the peninsula. And for anybody who knows Korea it was in Pusan, um, got settled into my place there. And again, found a game room right there on, on the base. So, you know, over the course of that year, it went from going on a Friday night to going on a Friday, Saturday night to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now I'm starting to go towards the week and it's eventually turning into from, you know, I'm enjoying doing this to, I almost need to do this because this is where my happy place is. This mm. is where it feels good. Yeah. So, you know, that developed into <laughs> rather quickly. I was only in Korea a year. And by the time I had gone back home six months into my, into my, you know, deployment over there, it had gone from basically finding that room to now going almost, almost seven nights a week to now letting my first wife know I needed money for all these different reasons that didn't really exist. Like I needed to help somebody out or we were going on a trip here or I needed this or whatever it was to when that ran out, you know, now I had possessions I brought with me. I had things shipped over there. I had a, a, a really nice bicycle I used to ride around. I had all this electronic equipment for where I was staying. I sold it all. I sold it to get money to gamble with. And it didn't take long before that money ran out. So now I'm like, okay, um, all right. So she's not giving me any more money. I don't have money. I don't have money from this. What do I do? Well, I started borrowing from my subordinates. And for your military service members out there who are listening, they know what I just said is a huge no-no. A non-commissioned officer, and I was the non-commissioned officer in charge for my squad there, you don't do that kind of thing. It just doesn't happen. So I was doing that for a while, and eventually that dried up, and it got to the point where I actually stole from my own unit. Um, that's the first point where I got into trouble. Um, this was near the end of my time in Korea. So I was immediately pulled out of my position as the NCOIC. I was brought back up to Seoul where the headquarters was. Um, now, mind you, during this entire time that I was in Korea, I also developed a training program that our commander adopted and used pieces of throughout the entire unit, which was, which was placed all over the peninsula. I was also developing other soldiers. So there's this whole Jekyll and Hyde thing going on where I was doing all these good things day to day. But at the same time, this animal inside of me just needed to be fed, Yeah, you know? So fast forward, I get back to the headquarters and this was late October, early November of 2002. Um, I sit down with my commander, my colonel, and he says to me, he says, I don't know what to do here. You know, you're doing all these great things, but then you have this character issue, you know, so I'm going to demote you. He dropped me by one rank and that's all he did. And then he sent me on my way to my next unit. 
So there's my there's a concern with that, and it's and one of the reasons I do what I do, and you'll hear more about that a little bit later. But one of the reasons I do what I do right now was was that piece right there. Okay, I knew I all I wanted to do was gamble. I had no idea it was an addiction right. and that you could be addicted to it, and right. apparently neither did anybody else. That was <laughs> right. you know, so I was demoted, and then and then I got to go see my first sergeant, who then did my end of year non-commissioned officer evaluation report where I got almost the highest marks you can get on just about every category, but one, which was the character area, you know, and apparently I had a character defect in that I was going out and taking money from my subordinates. Well, it wasn't a money issue. It was a gambling issue, which I would then later find out as I learned more and more and more about the addiction. Fast forward, I end up going back to the States. It, it surfaces again. I regained my rank and more. It surfaced again right? I ended up doing it again to the point where now I got kicked out of the army. Not only did I get kicked out of the army, but by now my first wife had separated from me. She had no idea what was happening. She just knew that this was not something she wanted to be a part of, which I don't blame her for. Um, during that time, I had my first suicide attempt, um, which was basically taking a very large bottle of painkillers I had for my back and ending up in a hospital um, waking up with my then boss looking at me and going, we need to get you some help. So again, they just sent me to a general counselor that I went to and sat down and I'm going to be honest. I told them what I thought they wanted to hear. So they would just leave me alone and I could get through my hour and move on with my day, you know, cause I did not want to engage. I, I didn't even know what I didn't know at that point. Right. So, uh, fast forward, I did eventually get kicked out of the army. My gambling addiction carried on into my veteran life, my civilian life got separated and ultimately divorced from my my first wife during that time two more suicide attempts um i went through probably four or five jobs and i didn't lose all of my jobs honestly half the time i quit my job because it was interfering with my gambling schedule yeah um <clears throat> i can remember one point during there in this incident i talk about a lot where i'm driving towards a casino and as i'm driving towards the casino I'm yelling at myself, right? I'm punching the roof of my car. There's tears on my face. And I, cause I remember seeing it in the mirror and I'm saying, turn around, you know, what's going to happen. You're going to lose all your money. Why are you still driving forward? But yet my foot is still on the gas pedal mm -hmm. moving forward. Yeah. Right. So <clears throat> I finally get to the casino, which had a large parking garage. I'm still this way in the parking garage. Meanwhile, I'm walking toward the door. Now you would look at most people and go, you idiot. What are you doing? Right. But for me, the me that knows better is not winning. It's the me that wants to be in that room that's winning. So I remember walking up to the door, you open the door, you know, I hear the bells, I see what's going on in there. And all of a sudden, boom, everything, all that stress is gone. Um, now I get in there and this was on a Friday evening and I walked in there with about 500 bucks. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go play and you know, whatever, we'll see what happens. Well, lo and behold, again, I won, right? So I played and played and played and played and played. And, and in the morning, I thought, OK, I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. I've, I've lost everything that I have. You know, I, I went way up and then lost everything. I'm going to go ahead and go. Well, I get out to my car, I turn on the car. And I'm hearing like Sunday music. And I'm like, why is this music playing on my radio today? Well, I didn't leave Saturday morning. I left Sunday morning and had no idea I'd gone all the way till Sunday morning. Uh -huh. I spent basically 36 hours in that casino and had no idea that I did it. Didn't eat the entire time. Barely drank the entire time. Only went to the bathroom when I absolutely had to <clears throat> so that I wouldn't get thrown out for making a mess in the place. Um, I, I'm just being honest. Yeah. You know, this is what happened. So got left there. It just a, a stone cold mess. Drove back. That night I sat in a grocery store parking lot and took almost all the um, all of the uh, antidepressants that I had in my bottle, which I later found out was not a good idea. Um, although with, with the intent at the time, it didn't really matter. Then I finally realized, wait a minute, I don't want to do this. This is more of a cry for help than it is actually wanting to kill myself. So I checked myself into a hospital. Um, they keep me there overnight. I get to drink a whole lot of charcoal fluid. Um, wake up the next morning, realize there's a check in my mailbox from my last employer. So I check myself out of that hospital against medical advice, drive back while my head's still spinning from the day before grab that check, cash it and go right back to the casino. And three hours later, I'm out again. Yeah. Nothing. So that's the insanity that this thing causes. Yep. 
Um, so eventually I reached a point and that was pretty close to what I'd call my rock bottom. My rock bottom came after I was working for a restaurant, a franchised restaurant. I was the G I was a GM in training. I was working one of the night shifts till one in the morning. And my job at the end of the shift was to gather all the deposit, drive it right down to the bank, drop it in the night deposit and go home. Well, two nights in a row, I took that night deposit down to the casino. Um, so after the second night, as I'm driving back, I'm thinking I have two options. I can either end this and be done with it, or I can go turn myself in and just, and, you know, have enough one. Either way I was done. So I drove myself to the police station. Of course, I turned myself in and then it processed from there. But in the meantime, I knew I'd hit my rock bottom, um, searched and searched to find somewhere to go. And, and you know, as well as I do, there's very few places out there that will treat gamblers on an inpatient basis. I needed to be pulled away from the mainstream, shoved in a room somewhere and given treatment. Um, so after a lot of digging, I finally found, and it through a, through a counselor at the VA had said to me, have you ever heard of the gambling treatment program in, in Cleveland? At the time it was in Brecksville, Ohio I said, no. <clears throat> so she hands me a packet doesn't do make any calls or anything just hands me a packet and just says here you you give them a call i'm like okay so i call through it i find the numbers in there i call them and, and in 2007 i was able to get into the gambling treatment program in brexville ohio which for the first time saved my life <laughs> i got into recovery i started to learn about me i started to learn that this thing is real it is an addiction it does exist and it and it kills people yeah so I got into my recovery. I went to Gamblers Anonymous meetings, which they had right there on the VA campus. And I was made to go to. And thank God I was because the first one I went to, I'm like, uh, this is a religious cult thing. I'm not going to do this. Sat in there. We read some stuff in the book, which was OK. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, people, the first guy gets up and he starts talking. And I'm like, how the heck did he learn about me? Right. You know, and then the next person gets up and I'm like, how do they know about me, too? And all of a sudden I realize you start to realize that this is more about connection to people who get it than anything. Yep. You know, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but I, that was kind of my first exposure to that. So through that time, through 2007, through about 2009, I was in recovery. I was healthy. I actually wrote my first book during that time. Um, and it was, it was so cathartic for me, but I, at, during that whole time, I was beginning to make a mistake which was, I was starting to feel really good. I felt mm -hmm. healthy. I felt like myself. So I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm not gambling. I'm not doing any of this. I don't need to go to this meeting. I'm okay. What do I need these meetings for? I'm healthy now. Well, that was a mistake <laughs> because over time I eventually came back to Pennsylvania. Um, I reconnected with and eventually married the woman who's now my wife, who you've actually, you've actually met a couple yes, of times. Now. Lovely. Um, <clears throat> but the whole time during this, my, my addiction was eventually building back. It was very slowly building back up. So along with doing all these things with her and loving her and doing all the things with her, I was also sneaking around behind her and lying and manipulating and, you know, drawing myself back into addiction, which actually started itself as a money manipulation thing more so than a, than a gambling addiction this time. It's the same mentality. You know, I was getting a thrill out of, Nobody knowing that I was taking out this credit card to pay this credit card to pay this off to pay that off, all the while not using any money that I was earning from work, which we were paying bills with. Right. So I did all this manipulation thinking I can stay ahead of this. I can fix this just like I did with gambling. You know, you you say it. that not to interrupt you, but when you say that, when you talk about kind of getting a high off of off of doing that, off of mm -hmm. like the you know, the cycle of it, right? Like mm -hmm. I I remember like that instantly made me feel that same kind of high off of like getting by and like, which is so messed up because it's yeah. like, we're not supposed to feel good because we like beat the system or like somehow managed to like take, you know what I mean? Like juggle yeah. all this. And it's like, that's not supposed to be a good feeling, but that's the feeling of like the chaos and yeah. knowing the chaos and knowing what to expect from the chaos. Like anything else was not normal. And it's right. like, there is a high, it's like, or whenever I would, I would, um, you know, get everything paid and then I still had money to go and gamble and then, or I didn't pay anything and I used that money to gamble and won and was able to catch up on all my bills like that, that made me feel good. And that is freaking sick. Is what right. That is. 
Yeah, and the, and the worst part about it is, and you hit the nail on the head, Christina, and the worst part about it is, though, the person we're getting the biggest high off deceiving is ourselves. Right. You know, is, oh, yeah, I've just validated everything that I was thinking, that mm. my twisted mind was thinking, ooh, I'm cool at this. It, mm. It's not cool. No. Um, and and there's, there's also goes along with this, and I know you know this feeling, too, is that roller coaster of, yes, that high is here, but when the crash happens, the crash becomes really hard. So, and the problem solving, like, how am I going to fix this? You know, the high that comes from that, like actually fixing it. And it's like, it, yeah, when you, when you talk about that, and that's why it's so important to have these connections with other people who, who have thought and behaved in the same way. That's where we get the connection of like, I see how sick this is and being able to tell somebody else who recognizes it as well. But the time we didn't know any different. Right. Right. Yeah. And the value in that is when you're, when you are able to do that. And I do it to this day when, when thoughts comes up or feelings come up that I'm not, that aren't quite balancing out, I'm able to talk about them now, you know? So I went through this whole addiction for several years with her and to the point where I got to the end of, uh, 2019. Okay. And it was January 3rd of 2020. I came home. I know this was a Friday. I came home, I sat down on my couch, I told my wife, I'm sick, I'm going to stay on the couch because I'm not feeling good and I don't want to get you sick. Well, I spent the entire weekend on the couch deciding whether I wanted to live or die. Um, and and I tell this story a lot, and you've heard this one before, but I tell it because it's true. As I'm sitting there at some point, Morgan Freeman from Shawshank Redemption's popping into my head going, get busy living or get busy dying. For weeks before that, I'd been carrying around a knife that I'd got from the American Legion. Um, and up until the point where I admitted everything, if, if, if my wife had found out and called me out on it, I was fully prepared to walk to the back of my property and I had an exit plan in place. Um, now whether I would have actually executed or not, I don't know, but I had the plan in place. Still had the thoughts. Uh, Yeah. 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 So we get to January 6th, which is a Monday morning. Uh, my wife goes off to work. I get in the car and I drive to the local VA and basically tell them that I'm suicidal and I need to be checked in. I said, but before you do that, I need to make a phone call. And I went out and I called my wife and basically just ripped her off the chair she was sitting on and threw her to the floor. Um, because through all of this, she had no clue, which is another thing about this addiction is, is how easy it is to hide this, this thing. Um, you know, with a drug or an alcohol addiction, at some point, the physical part of it catches up to the point where if you have a loved one, they're going to see you drunk at some point. They're going to see your eyes red at some point. They're going to see you oversleeping at some point. With a gambling addiction, we have such an ability to separate ourselves from the addiction at any given moment that I can be standing in front of somebody and talking to them and they would never have an idea that my guts are shredding while I'm doing that. Right. You know, um, and, and that's one of the things, to be honest, that sucks about this addiction is the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. So... I finally did come clean. I went through an inpatient treatment. I got myself back into the the gambling treatment program now in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and went through that program again. But in the meantime, I got myself into a GA program. And the difference between 2007 and 2020 is that in 2007, I knew I had a problem. In 2020, I knew I was powerless over gambling. And that if I didn't stay connected to my recovery, I'm going to fall right back into it. Yeah. Um, so I go to that meeting faithfully every single week unless something's happening. Um, I've been doing it ever since then. I went through that treatment program again. I got out and did aftercare for almost six months afterwards uh, through my counselor I had at the program. Got another counselor at my local uh, G, uh, VA. Um, started my podcast back in 2020, which has been just a wonderful experience for me again to be able to connect and to be able to share and to be able to talk about this addiction with other people who get it you know so i was able to do that um and i started working at a a um a treatment facility because i had half my master i had a, uh, my bachelor's and half my master's in social work so i could not get licensed and run a treatment on my own but i was allowed to run groups i was allowed to work with people as long as it was on a supervised basis So I worked at a drug and alcohol facility where they also allowed me to work with co-occurring gamblers and kind of give them extra support and help, which was a wonderful, again, experience for me because I could share with people who were struggling, not only with the gambling, but the drug and alcohol, because many of the feelings are exactly the same. Yeah. You know, 
So I was able to share my experience and then also draw on their experience and learn from that as well. Um, you know, so all did all of that, started the podcast um, and got back into speaking and advocating, which I had done a little bit of before I fell into my relapse. But one of the things I love to do is talk about my story. And one of the reasons I love talking about my story is raising awareness, because there are so many people out there. And, and I focus on the military and veteran community, right, like you do with the women's community. But there's so many people in both communities that just aren't aware how serious this is and that it's an addiction in the first place. Absolutely. You know, I didn't. To, I didn't know. You didn't yeah. know. No, I didn't. Yeah. So it's like. And, and the more that we talk about it, you know, aside, you know, outside of the anonymity of, of the, the 12 step programs, um, and there's no, there's no, you know, don't take that out of context as far as like how I feel about the 12 step programs. Mm -hmm. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just being honest. Like we need to kind of like, for those of us who can, and I understand that it's a very privileged position to be able to do that. But yeah. for those of us that can step outside of our own anonymity and, you know, as long as we are sacred to the anonymity of the people in the group um, is just like be able to step out and kind of share our experiences and our stories and kind of the different journeys. It's like, you know, I just want to kind of step back here while we're talking about this is like when you talk about your 07, you know, experience of recovery mm -hmm. versus your um, your later recovery. Can, can I just ask you before we get too far away from this, can you clarify what what was the difference? was the difference in 07 because you talk about like you were powerless, you know, you, you came to understand that you were powerless over your gambling, but in 07, did you feel more backed in the corner for recovery? Like you didn't like, there was no other way. No, I, I the difference I think is I, in both cases, I knew I needed recovery. Right. Okay. I think the difference between 07 and 2020 is I reached a point in my recovery in 07 where I just didn't internalize the fact that that doesn't just because you feel good recovery doesn't stop there. There's, there's, there, there's a gentleman I know who's says something that's stuck with me. There's no graduation in this, in this, right. in this thing. And I reached a point where honestly, I felt like I'd graduated. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think I've that's heard that a difference. lot. I felt like I felt good enough that I could do this on my own. I was strong enough. You know, I'm, I'm a military veteran. I've got what I need now. I can hold my own. And the reality of it is I can't. Um, and, and that that I don't that's not a weak statement. That's one of the strongest statements we as people who struggle with addictions can make and admit to ourselves is that we need the connection of other people. We need to be able to to share what's going on, even if it's on an anonymous level. Right. Right. We need to be able to connect in order to maintain our strength. This is a disease. Right. If we're going to survive the disease, we need to take our medicine. So, you know, if I had been struggling with some other form of chronic disease back in 2007 and all of a sudden just threw the bottle away because I was feeling well, that disease would come back. Well, it's the same thing here. And I just didn't realize that, you know, yeah. because I'm like, well, it's not a physical disease. It's just a mental thing. And I'm OK now. I'm strong enough. Well, it, it found its way back to me. And now I what I know is this. Is there a possibility that I could stop all of my connections and meetings and be perfectly fine? Of course, there's a possibility that could happen. Am I willing to take that risk? No. Right. That's the difference between now and 2007. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to kind of go back to that before we got away from it, because I know sure. that you talked about like you felt good. You felt like you were in, in a much better place. And like, mm -hmm. I don't think maybe even then, like, even though you learned about the addiction, maybe you still didn't understand what the addiction really meant as far as like, it's like, yeah, okay, well, it's an addiction. All right. I understand that. But what does that really, really mean for right. me? Well, it means that I've got issues I need to continue to work on. Yes. Um, and it, it means so much more than like treatment. It's, it's continual growth and healing and all this It's so much more than just talking to a therapist once a week or going to a 12 step meeting once a week. Like it's so yeah. much more than that. And it's, it's, it's really kind of getting to the the crux of it all. Of, it, of it's amazing that you say that because when I went back to the to the uh, VA program, my counselor said, "What do you want to accomplish from being here?" Right, and I said, "To be honest with you, I don't just want to stop the addiction. I want to understand what's underneath of that addiction for me, you know, so that I can really start to approach how do I untangle the mess that's underneath of it to ultimately tackle the addiction." So 
in, instead of just treating the symptom, now we want to get to the cause, right? We're, we're doing a root cause. And you're absolutely right. What I've learned on this journey this time around is that there's so much more that went into me being addicted to gambling than just me being addicted to gambling. Right. One of the one of the things I've always been uncomfortable doing is sharing pieces of myself, deeper pieces of myself with the people closest to me. I could do it with an audience of people I don't know all day long. I've never no pro- never had a problem with that. But to the people I was closest to, I always felt like if I shared too much of me, they'd have some view of me that was ugly or mean or bad, or they wouldn't want to talk to me anymore. I connect to that so much. Yeah. Yeah. And what I've learned is, and and I, I started with my wife by saying, listen, I'm going to tell you something, but I'm very uncomfortable telling you, but I need to tell you. Right. And it could have been something, you know, that was perceived as maybe silly or, or trivial, but to me it wasn't. Right. So if I was willing to do the smallest things like that and get uncomfortable with it, as I've done that, I've been able to get more uncomfortable with things. So, you know, now what I'll do is, 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 you know, maybe she'll say something to me and I get defensive. And what I'll do is then I'll stop and I'll go, you know what, that's my ego flaring up because I'm being defensive right now. I'm the kid who doesn't want you yelling at me anymore. Let's talk about this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And 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 maybe that conversation is uncomfortable, but you know what? You get to the other end of it. My God, does it feel better than tangling it all up and swallowing Carry, it all down and carrying it around. And it's just yeah. like and then it gets easier to share those uncomfortable feelings. You know, yeah. when situations come up and it's like, I still struggle with like, how do I how do I tell this person how I'm feeling? Because it might anger them. It right. might, you know, make them defensive. It might, right. you know, cause them to want to leave or want me to leave or you know all these fears roll through my head but then it's like the alternative to me now is when i struggle with this mm-hmm. the alternative to me now is okay well i hold it inside i build resentment right and then that to me is the fast track back to addiction to exactly. not handling things in a healthy way and i never want to be in that place again so yes i would rather get uncomfortable uncom- for a minute i would r- rather risk them walking out on me or them viewing me a certain way than to me to ever lose that path of, again you know and it takes me a few days sometimes but i get there you know yeah and and what you just said is a lot of what you'll hear in treatment programs that people try to teach is what somebody else feels or thinks or perceives about something you said is not your responsibility. Your responsibilities and, and my responsibility is to deal with what I'm feeling and what I need to say. Right now we can say it in a way that that's not aggressive. We can say it in a way that doesn't feel like we're throwing darts, Yeah, but it could still feel that way to the other person. But for us, and especially like you and me who struggle with, you know, and who are in recovery for addiction, I don't feel like I struggle so much anymore, but we're in recovery for addiction. It's so important for us not to bottle that up. It's so important for us to say that and to yeah. say, listen, I, I, you may not like what I'm about to say, but I need to say it because I don't want to keep this inside, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And I'm sorry if, if that doesn't feel comfortable to you, but I had to say it and it was yeah. uncomfortable for me to say it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's where, at least for me, that's where real change started to happen. Yes. Same. So, and, and I mean, I'm able to share that now with different people. You know, the, the book that I wrote this time, as opposed to the first book that I wrote is so much deeper because there's so much more understanding now of who I am, Yeah. you know, that I felt like I had to share it. When I ran in, went in and first started writing this, I, I was originally just going to rewrite my first book. Right. Which, which by like way, more is, perspective, kind of like a, yes. like, this is where I'm at now. This is how I can look at this now kind of thing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and the first book, by the way, is called be happy with crappy. And there's a whole <laughs> story behind that one too. But anyway, I got into writing it and I'm like, this thing is taking on a life of its own. The words are very similar. A lot of the stories are similar, but it's taking on a life of its own. And I feel like it needs to have a title of its own. You know, I feel like it needs to be its own entity. Because it was just so much deeper than the first book. So, yeah. Well, I know too, it's interesting that you say that because I started thinking about writing my story and I was encouraged by, by others in the, in the community and, um, you know, to write my story. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I started writing it early on, which I created my journal. So I have a journal and a burn book that I, I just, I needed a therapeutic outlet in the early days. And so that's what I did. So they're not mm-hmm. great. 
but they are on Amazon um, mm-hmm. and Barnes and Noble. And I did it all on my own, self-published mm-hmm. and and did all that. So, but I, you know, I started writing and I got all my journals and stuff like that. And I started trying to put my story together and I got so far to the point where, okay, I think this book is done. And then I have thoughts of maybe doing three books, kind of like a before, during and after. And then, uh-huh. you know, but I kept getting like hung up. Like, why can I not let this go? And it's like, you know, here I am two and a half years in recovery now. And my growth now versus like, if you listen to the podcast in the early days, it's right. like, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm still exploring. You know, I started the podcast three months into mm-hmm. my recovery. I started writing mm-hmm. early in my recovery. And it's like now the hindsight and the the growth that I've done since then, it's just like, I just feel like such a different person today yeah. than when I started writing two years ago, two and a half years right. ago. And so it's like, I decided what I decided to do. And you can tell me, cause I'm going to get into your, your writing process, but I'm going to make this okay. about me right now for a second. Yeah. But what totally. I try, what I tried to do when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, why is this not working? And what I, you know, as I kind of processed and kind of dug a little deeper, I thought, because I'm trying to put it in a box, I'm trying to create this box of what I think it should be. Like mm-hmm. I kept thinking it should be my story from start to finish. And it's like, but my story is evolving and right. my my hindsight's evolving and my growth is evolving and my healing's evolving. So it's like, that's where I was stuck is that I was stuck in this box of like, this is what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so now, and this has been an amazing part of my own creative process is I like busted out the box and I'm like, I'm not going to do like a chapter of like when I was eight years old and I, you know, like it's, it's not going to be anything like that. It's more about reflections and confessions and thoughts. And so it's like, once I kind of got rid of what I was supposed, what I thought it was supposed to look like and started just doing what I wanted, it's been amazing. I've been, I've gotten so much done and I actually feel like I'm in a place where I can just hand it over to the next stage. And that's a really good place to be in, but I'm just kind of working on my vulnerability Mm -hmm. because every time I've done something and and I'm going to ask you about this. It's like, wh- how does it feel, you know, about it takes a, a huge level of vulnerability to put ourselves out there, right? Because I know for me, you know, thinking about releasing this book and thinking about all the things that I've done and, and you know, as more and more people find me and it's like, I struggle with, is this all people are ever going to know about me? Christina, the gambling addict who, you know, did this harm, you know, when I'm so much more than that. And it's mm-hmm. like, so it's kind of, and then having people kind of question your story and, you know, or people that have been in your lives that kind of come out with their own, like harm that you did them or something. And it's just like right. things that you didn't even think about, you know, people right. that you didn't even know you affected and, you know, having to kind of look at all that and relive it, open that wound up and kind of rehash it out and have people talk about it and ask you about it. Like, what does it take to get into that kind of, um, process for you like what does that look like for me it was it was become becoming willing to take on the risk that somebody reading my words you know it might reopen a wound for 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 somebody and and i'm going to give you somebody in particular my wife okay okay i remember when she read the draft of this book um i was so scared and the reason that I was scared was because it's reliving moments that I know she doesn't want to relive, right? But the only way that I'm going to truly move forward in releasing this thing and getting this thing out to where it needs to belong, listen, if, if I'm the person picking up the book and I'm reading the book, I need to feel what that writer's saying, Yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't willing to assume that risk that it could open up an old wound, then the person reading the book on the other end is never going to get out of it what I intended from it. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not about the words. It's not about the picture. It's about the feeling. And again, it's all connection. So when I write, I write the way you and I are sitting here and talking now. So when you read my book, it's going to sound an awful lot like what we're doing right now because that's the way I like to write. Now I did do it in kind of a linear fashion. I wrote, you know, I had a section called before gambling and mm-hmm. then the gambling soldier, then the gambling veteran, you know, and then yeah. after game. Um, so it's in a linear form, but built into that linear is exactly what you talked about. Just opening up and, and exploring 
and and discovering who I was and sharing that discovery, you know, throughout the course of the book. So, but to do that, I had to become willing to accept the fact that there are going to be people out there who read this thing and are not going to be happy with what they read. They're not going to be happy with me. It's going to open up old wounds, but I don't change anything by not writing it. Right. You know? Yeah. I don't make that person any less mad at me. The only thing they've done over this time is to be able to suppress it. Well, maybe by opening it up now, maybe they can process it and they can move forward and they can get some closure from it. Maybe they call me and yell at me, which is good for them. I don't know. Or maybe they get a true understanding of what you've been going through. Yeah. Or maybe they say, wow, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't understand that. And now I have a better understanding. Yeah. you know, so at the end of the day, my ultimate goal for writing this, you know, is twofold. Number one, selfishly, it's cathartic for me to be able to talk about this. But number two is to reach those people that are what were me, right? That was sitting there at one point in my life going, nobody could ever possibly understand what's going on in my head right now. Nobody could understand it. When the reality is there's plenty of us out there that can understand it because we've been there in some form or fashion. Right. And that's the person I want to reach. Right. And whether they're military or not, who cares if it's just anybody who's struggling with anything to realize that they're not alone. It's worth the risk of me having somebody coming back and yell at me to be able to reach those people. Yeah, exactly. So and then kind of just just accepting that. And I think, too, sometimes that 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 really just kind of holds me back. But it's like knowing, too, the reason why we, we do do this is you're right to you know, help our, help ourselves move forward and let go, but also for the people that it impacts for the people it does help. And, um, you know, for, for all of those reasons and more. Right. So we've kind of talked about, um, your recapture story, which they can grab your book if they want to read more in depth, more in detail. Um, you can also check out our previous episode together. You can check out your podcast um, to learn more about like your stories and, and, and things that you've um, experienced and and more about your recovery journey. But I kind of want to highlight some of the stuff that you've done um, in your advocacy work. Um, are there things that you can share with us? Like, Yeah, absolutely. There's really nothing. I don't have anything to hide. There are some things that aren't quite finished yet that I can't completely talk about, but um, just to give you some of the highlights, I mean, I've spoken just in the past year. um, I've spoken twice for a group out of Boston of clinicians up there about gambling in the military. I spoke for the clinicians all over the state of North Carolina. I did a conference last year in Syracuse, New York for the New York Council on Problem Gambling. It was the very first veterans conference. And what an honor to be able to do that. And during that, I got the New York Council's first ever award that they've ever given out. They gave me what they call the Medal of Freedom. Um, or no, Medal of Hope. I'm sorry. Medal of Freedom is an actual real thing for civilians. It's called the Medal of Hope. And it was, and it's one of the biggest honors I've ever received in my life, except for last year in Boston when I got the Potty Award, which, which was given out by podcasters for other podcasters when we were in Boston, which, by the way, somebody I know got it this year. Oh, wait, that was you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that was me and it was given to me by you. Yes, it was. Um, but anyway, I did that. Um, you know, I spoke this year at, there were two Pennsylvania conferences for their council on compulsive gambling. I spoke in Philadelphia and I spoke in Pittsburgh. I also went out to Seattle, Washington to speak for the evergreen council on problem gambling, uh, in Chicago to speak for the Illinois council on problem gambling. And then of course at the national council, one problem gambling in Washington, D.C. this year at their annual conference, during which um, we are in a partnership now working on a partnership with the Marine Corps to help train their clinicians and to help train Marines throughout the world on what gambling is, why it's an addiction and how you can seek help. Now, I can't give you all the nuts and bolts of that because there's still a lot of nuts and bolts we have to work out in in terms of what that's going to look like, how it's going to work. But what an honor to be able to do that. And they're using training that primarily I got to develop. So, um, you know, that's, that's another thing that I've, I've had an honor, the honor of doing. 
Um, I'm working with a, and, I, and again, I'm not going to go into detail on this, but I'm going to be working with some ROTC groups to teach them about gambling and why it's a problem. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on again now actually becoming a coach counselor to start working with problem gamblers directly in an online therapeutic community to, to help them, give them some, uh, group therapy training, group train, group therapy on, uh, things like mindfulness, things like connection, things like, you know, struggling with and dealing with gambling addiction, um, you know, all those kind of things. So there's a lot going on. I'm, I almost always have something coming at me that I need to do. And I love it. I mean, I, I had a full-time job up until about a week and a half ago, I had a full-time job that I did that was outside of this, but that I always said that paid my bills and this fueled my passion. Um, this is my passion work. You know, this is what I want to do. And I don't, get paid for it, don't get paid for it, whatever. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life is raise this awareness. Um, you know, I can tell you just from your podcast alone, I've been able to connect with a couple of people from the military and to actually coach and work with them as problem gamblers in the military. Um, what an honor. What an honor to be able to do that. Um, I had a gentleman reach out to me through the podcast who is multiple years in recovery for his addiction, but he felt like he was kind of, you know, losing, I don't know, uh, energy on it for some reason. And then found yeah. the podcast and said he was reju rejuvenated. And he said he feels like it saved his recovery, you know, to be able to hear things like that, you know, that's the payback right there. You know, Absolutely. that's the thing that drives me to keep going because, okay, here's somebody who may have fell off the wagon because he was starting to get, I don't want to say bored because I don't know that's the right word, but starting to lose enthusiasm in his recovery, all of a sudden he's rejuvenated and ready to go back at it. You know, what a wonderful thing to hear. You know, when somebody calls and says, there's a gentleman I'm working with right now, I've been working with him for a couple of years. So I found through you who's still, you know, he's working with other people struggling with gambling right now and, and working on recovery with that. You know, it's remarkable. The things yeah. we can do by just, and I heard you guys say this last year, by just living our recovery out loud, you know? Yeah. By the ripple effect is is amazing. And I, I talk a, a lot about it, but just by us working our recovery, sharing our stories, sharing the stories of others and having the friendships that we do mm -hmm. in this podcast community, like we are tight knit yeah. little community. And, um, you know, we're so welcoming to other people that that want to podcast and want to share their story and um you know by doing those it's like the the impact of that like sometimes when we're struggling and when we're like frustrated with kind of how sometimes the thing the things are you know in our community yeah. and kind of you know sometimes we're really pushed up against a wall in some areas and things like that it's like there's some real struggles in what we do mm -hmm. um to be able to advocate and to be able to do what we do and you know, even in those tough moments where you just kind of feel like, oh, I don't know. Um, there's never a moment of regret right. for sharing my story out loud. There's never a moment of like, what am I doing? Like, it's more of like, should I be doing this? Should I continue to do this? And there's always that, that, that message or that, that, you know, moment where you're like, yes, I, I had a brief little setback, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I know it. I feel it. And then you get the messages um, from others who are like, because you shared your story or because you shared this person's story, I was able to connect with them, you know, or I was able to do this and now I'm doing this. And it's like that ripple effect, yeah. that ripple impact is just the most beautiful thing I think I've ever experienced in my life. I Aside from my own recovery yeah. and in my own journey, to, to experience the ripple effect through others is just not, you know, it's just make, makes everything I've been through worth it. And I agree with you. And by the way, that ripple effect is part of our recovery. You know, not only are we reaching out and, and paying it forward, but it's also helping to strengthen our, strengthen our own recovery. You know, it's funny yeah. kind of tying that into what you asked for earlier about vulnerability. Interesting point. Just over the past couple of days, I'm on a couple of different social media platforms. You know that you've seen me on there. Um, and I promote a lot of what I do on 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 a lot of those platforms, but I kind of saved one for myself as kind of my, you know, I don't talk too much about what I do from that standpoint. That's more of my friends and fun sort of platform. But 
I felt like I had to put the book on there because this was too important for me not to share. Some of the reaction I got back from some of my friends was amazing. So it was a lot less scary. I mean, I had talked about my my first book on that platform a number of years ago, but it's been a bunch of years since I've done anything. So I was a little afraid to do it, but I said, you know what, let's step through the fear and do it anyway. And, you know, you're reaching people again who you don't know who we don't know who we're touching by doing this. So yep. in hindsight, after doing it, I don't regret doing it at all. In fact, I'm glad I did it. You know? Yeah. So, and if there's that person out there who's not real cool with it, no, well, you know, there's a button where you can get rid of me if you need to. I'm okay with that. <laughs> so. Right. And I think it's kind of one of those points too, where we, where we recognize that, Hey, this is my life and my journey. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't fit with somebody else's idea of what it should be, then, you know, that's, that's okay. Right. And to just be okay with, with how that relationship yes goes from there you know it's just it's just staying true to what we what we believe and what we know to be right and to keep moving forward so but this was an excellent conversation and i am always so happy to talk to you it was fun being able to hang out with you in dc even though i came back sick um which i'm still kind of sick um but i'm hopefully i'm i'm getting on over it but you know we do the booth together and (laughs) Yeah, I'm hope I'm I am feeling so much better. It's just kind of getting rid of the last of it. But um, you know, we have so much fun at our booth yeah. and you know, in the work that we do. So I'm really happy that you were able to take this time and come on here. Um, so how can let's just reiterate how people can get a hold of you if they wanted to to reach out to you and, and have a conversation. Sure, absolutely. I'll just um you can reach out to me by email at fallinpodcast, F-A-L-L-I-N podcast at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. Um, you know, it's it's the it's the email address I tie to my own podcast and I'm open to anything. Ask me anything. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at fallinpodcast. Um, you know, and, that, and, and again, that's a real easy way to, to reach me as well. So... Yeah. And they can find your podcast anywhere they, they find mine. Yes. So, I mean, we're all kind of in the same place uh, and they can find your book at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Yeah. I'm excited to track you down and get your signature on it. <laughs> oh, you'll get it for sure. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> well, all right. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. What an honor. This is, this is great stuff. I love when we do this.